Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. These Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Under Muscaro, Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nucky spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Say hello to my little friend. What's your name, man? I told you. It doesn't matter what your name is. You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. And it is Friday, and we are back. Midweek show we did not do. Took that time off. Sandoz and the sidekick here on the Buccaneers Sports Network. I was on the road. Mike Gallagher here. Jay Sandoz joining via phone in just a moment. Yes, the women's basketball was with them on Wednesday. They took on Troy. We'll recap that game. We will also preview their matchup against Georgia Tech, who is led by Nell Fortner, and women's basketball enthusiast. Certainly very familiar with Nell Fortner, former U.S. women's basketball head coach and won a gold medal in 2000. We'll talk about that game a little bit later. Men's basketball has Milligan this Sunday. I'll be on the call as Jay is traveling on the road. Army-Navy is the contest that he will be at. Of course, we will not have coverage of that in the Buccaneer Sports Network. He's just going to see his first-ever Army-Navy game, which is uh, obviously extremely exciting. We'll get his thoughts on that in a moment. But men's basketball and Milligan, we'll talk about that, how the Bucs can avoid an upset, how they can avoid even a close call like they had against Lees McRae a few years back in very similar circumstances to the ones that they will be walking into on Sunday. We'll also talk FCS playoffs and bold predictions, which is always Jay Sando's favorite. We welcome him in now. Now, firstly, you're on the road right now, Jay, and the level of excitement. Do you have butterflies in your stomach for this very momentous occasion in your life? Uh, yes. Uh, thought about what it's going to be like when I walk in, see the Army, Navy, the, the pageantry of, you know, the troops and the uh, cadets and the corpsmen as they walk in and uh, get set in the stadium. So I'm, I'm pretty jacked up about it. Uh, I didn't sleep a lot last night. We are... Uh, currently en route we're going to stop in gettysburg i've never been there we're going to look at some of the war memorial battlefield all that fun stuff and then uh, make our way into philly the next day so very excited about the army navy i've waited uh really i think 15 years for this i I watched the game as a kid but until uh able to serve in in a war that really i think the game took a new light for me and all that so uh, i don't don't know that i've been more excited for a non-etsu game in a long time in foreshadowing, I'm wondering if one of your bold predictions for later will be about the Army-Navy game, or do you want to keep that out of it altogether so you can just sit back and enjoy and not have any rooting interest aside from the obvious one that you do favoring Army? I don't think you know me very well if you don't think I'm going to make a bold prediction on this one. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see what it is. Uh, men's basketball, and we'll talk men's basketball, women's basketball, then FCS playoffs, and bold predictions. Taking on Milligan, and really the main question I have for you, Jay, obviously you won't be there, and uh, Milligan is not a team that we really need to talk about a lot. We know them from around the area. We know the type of opponent in terms of the level that they're at with the non-D1. Earlier we had Newberry, uh, and even to the extent Delaware State is a very low-end D1. Um, still coming up Mars Hill on the 29th. Uh, of course, last year played Reinhardt, and the list goes on and on, but the Lees McRae contest a couple of years back, and if you look back at how that game unfolded, Lees McRae was 1-6. in six. It ended up being a five-point victory for the Bucs. It was December 1st, coming back from the Sanford Pentagon Showcase in South Dakota, and obviously it's a little uncomfortable looking at South Dakota, simply considering that ETSU is coming back, granted with a longer um a longer time off than before in that 2016-17 game against Lees McRae, but eight days between the North Dakota State game in which the Bucks lost by 10 and Milligan, of course, finals week is wrapped up and the players can uh, focus on basketball 100% now over this break, with which Coach Forbes has always appreciated when we've talked to him around this time. But coming back from the Dakotas, same as three years ago, hoping that the game isn't as tight as that one was, what do you remember about that contest, and what did Lees McRae do so well to make things tough on the box? Well, I think the, the big thing was 
the Bucks really coming off the high of picking up those three wins against what ended up being two teams that went to the tournament and one that was in the conference championship game. So three quality opponents in UC Irvine, Milwaukee, and South Dakota State. And I, I think kind of winning that and then having just all everybody kind of loving themselves and probably not taking that game too seriously. Plus, I'm sure a little bit of the travel was right after Thanksgiving. There was an extra week. You know, Thanksgiving wasn't quite as late as it was this year. So there was an extra week before you get the finals, come back. And, and really, I don't think put a lot of effort into it defensively. And they gave up a lot of clean looks. And honestly, there were a lot of open shots that went down for Lee's McRae in that contest. That's, that's the, the big thing that sticks out, sort of the overconfident and then giving up so many open looks. And I think that's sort of the theme for North Dakota State was how the Bucks really started the year off playing very good defense and the last three games have not. And some of that maybe you go, well, they played three straight road games and there's a few different things you could look at, but still they've not played very good defense. Watching practice a little bit yesterday as I was running some of the internet lines and other things that people don't need to be bored with, but watching practice yesterday, it was almost all defensive for the hour that I was in there. And so I would be shocked if they uh, haven't spent a lot of time getting back to basics and trying to work on themselves. And they're not really game planning for Milligan so much as just trying to work on themselves. And in a game like that, I think that that's fine. I don't know how much scouting they really do or have done over, you know, Steve Forbes' uh, tenure as far as playing non-division ones, exactly how much they, they do. they they worked a little bit on LSU just to get them a little bit familiar with, with press and breaking the press on the offensive end. But defensively, I think they're just going to try to do whatever the, the principles uh, that they want to do on man-to-man defense, worked a little bit one through one But I would be shocked if they don't come out ready to play defensively in this contest. Do you think, and talking about the areas in which ETSU needed to shore up, and Coach Forbes talked a lot about that and really about the practice time meaning so much to the Bucs after that long stretch away from home. Offensively, did you feel like there were areas that needed major improvements or much like Coach Forbes talked about post-game with you, he focused a lot on defense. Did you think it was really just that side of the ball? Yeah, because I think defense for for this team, you know, kind of sets the tone. Plus, they weren't able to take advantage – of what they normally do, which is play good defense, create turnovers, or create bad shots, and then able to run uh, in transition and get buckets, uh, or at least be able to get a secondary transition uh, going and, and get e- easy, clean looks. So when it, you have to go, and I think for a lot of teams, there's not many teams built that I think they can just walk the ball up the court, run sets, and go at it. You know, that's sort of how how Wofford was last year, but there's not many teams really like that. And for the Bucks, they've always tried to use – and really, no matter who's the coach, going back to the to the mid to late 80s, I mean, they've always wanted to use their athleticism, uh, which is generally one of the top in the league and has been for, God, 20, 30 years now. They want to be able to run, score, and transition, you know, really use the defense as a catalyst for the offense. And so I think because the defense hasn't been doing that, and then they got beat on the glass too, which was a little bit of a shock by North Dakota State. So I think uh, really that just the, the defense – uh, kind of led to all of that. So I think if they could shore up the defense, it's it's much easier, you know, in transition when you when you have odd numbers or at least playing fast where you can let athletes make plays, which is pretty much the game at ETSU. You know, they're not missing as many bunnies as they were early in the season, so I think they've kind of shored that up. And, you know, three-point shooting still a little bit feast or famine. You know, other than Trey Boyd consistently knocking down outside shots, you're you're still seeing some guys struggle. You see David Williamson have a good day. You see Pat Good have a good day. You what you don't see is them giving you three three of those baskets a game. You know you're kind of relying on Trey to hit from the outside and and everybody else maybe uh, help you out when you can. But you know certainly you can't have a goose egg from from Patrick Good at, at any point in time. I think for the team to be successful, he's got to figure out a way to score. Now uh, I, some teams I think at least recently are just trying to basically they're just sitting on him at the line. And we heard Trey Boyd talk a lot about in the offseason he worked on, you know, he knew that's a scouting report. So I've got to be able to create a shot. I've got to be able to go baseline. i got to be able to get – got to be able to drive and kick. And I think Patrick's still not comfortable doing that. I think he's still pretty much in a world where he just wants to be a, a catching a shot or, or coming down on transition, you know, pulling up for three. That's really the things I think he's worked on his whole life with his dad in the gym at 5 a.m., which are – you know, he's pretty much uh, uh, 
legendary about what him and Coach Good and kind of starting that uh, deal, not just at Science Hill when his dad was an assistant coach, but taking it to being a head coach at Davy Crockett. I'm sure now at Unicoi County, they opened up the gym at 5 a.m. to get guys in there getting in shots. And I think Patrick's just spent his whole life taking those type shots and teams are trying to take away those shots. Well, it's a great point because last year we talked about a lot and really my amazement more than anything. I think you were a bit more accustomed to Patrick Good's game, just being around the area more, seeing him come up through high school. And then ultimately after going to Appalachian state, coming back to ETSU, but 223 of his 248 shots last year were outside the arc. And if I remember right, the percentage was even higher at Appalachian State. I think it was something like 96 or 97%. I think only like eight or nine shots. Granted, he didn't take as many at Appalachian State, but the ratio probably pretty similar um, if you project it out to 250 shots like he took last year. Like 95, 96% of those shots came from outside the arc. Only eight or nine inside the arc. And the scouting report, you've talked about it just then Trey Boyd knows that about himself and he said in a post-game interview with you a couple games ago that he had tried to get better at that we saw him throw down a pretty nasty dunk against North Dakota State uh, when the Bucks were making that second half charge in the beginning of the second half also hit a mid-range jumper and a three-point jumper I don't think there's anything more representative of how far Trey Boyd has come than that little sequence there where perhaps Patrick is still struggling a bit if you want to draw the comparison and you did a little bit to North Dakota State and that contest this year versus the Lees McCray game uh, in 2016-17 where there were just a lot of open looks there and North Dakota State obviously made the Bucks pay where Lees McCray nearly did. I think the fact that we're still talking about the game three years later says that that certainly stuck with the program. Three days later, after the Bucks played Lees McCray in 2016-17, they had another non-D1 against Limestone and they scored the exact same amount of points ETSU did, 85, but 23 less points were scored uh, by the Bucks' opponent. Lee's McRae scored 80. Limestone scored 23. So I think if, if there's anything you and me know about Steve Forbes, it's that when something isn't right, he has such a way as a head coach, and this is probably one of the things that makes him so good, having won 25 games a year since he's gotten to ETSU. He is so good at getting that right, getting through to the guys, knowing what buttons to push, knowing, I don't know if it's what drills to run or how to go about fixing the exact thing that he wants fixed, but it seems like there's never a problem and a major significant hole in the team for more than a game or two at least to the extent that they could be challenged by a D2 yeah and I think you know coming off a loss changes things too I think it's easy to get lax uh, when you play a non-division one after a win or you've won a few or you're you're kind of buying into everything um, then coming off a loss. I think coming off a loss is a great time to get everybody refocused. You know, I know there's a lot of people, well, you know, nothing's good with a loss. Is that, I mean, I think you, you know, you certainly can learn from a loss, and we'll see Coach Forbes' teams have traditionally done that. And I actually felt kind of sorry for Milligan because I watching yesterday the, the defense, the intensity, a few other things, I, I would be very, very shocked if ETSU is not giving max effort on the defensive end and trying to do a few things to get back to the basics. And I, I think once you get into conference play where you know it's a set schedule, whether it was the old Thursday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, this year it's Wednesday, Saturday, I think you still know there's a couple days of practice, you know, you can work on yourself, a couple days you can put in a scout, a couple days do whatever. When you get in the non-conference, the way it kind of works, sometimes it's just fast and furious, scheduling games. Sometimes you have a lull like right now with finals where you've got, as you mentioned, eight games between – uh, eight days between games, you could have five or six days between games, and then you could have stuff where you, you get done, you, you play a tournament, play a couple in a row where they all play another one. You know, you hit the road and, and uh, play, you know, a couple games in four days, but you have to take three flights to get there. I mean, it's just a lot of different things. Once they get in the league play, I think it allows for at least a day a week, if not two, where you could do more working on yourselves, and I think that's where Coach – uh, was a little disappointed in. I think we heard that actually in football too with Randy Sanders. Uh, he was happy about the bye week because they spent so much time worrying about game planning offensive and defensively that we, we literally sometimes get away from simple things that, that would make our offensive defense be more efficient. In case you do happen to be worried about the Milligan game itself, uh, they lost to Elon by 41 earlier this year, and Elon was projected last in the CAA with 48 total votes. UNC Wilmington was second to last in that poll, and they got 118 votes. So Elon pretty clearly, at least in voters' eyes in the preseason, that much 
uh, further removed from the rest of the conference by getting that few of votes at the bottom of that league. And so with Milligan losing to them by 41, I think it would be a consensus for many around college basketball that ETSU uh, is far and away the better team between Elon uh, and themselves. So that's just a measuring stick to give you going into that contest. Jay, hold on for me. We'll be right back with ETSU women's basketball talk here on Santos and the Sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Bright Ridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com. Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network segment two on this Friday. Jay Sandoz on the road. I am Mike Gallagher, perhaps better known on this show as the Sidekick, and we are taking you through ETSU women's basketball. Just wrapped up ETSU men's basketball talk, and Jay Sandoz was in studio for the Wednesday game against Troy for the women. Obviously, I was there, and it was just a tough start. Get Jay's thoughts in just a moment, but really the story of the game that first half, Troy opened the game on a 10 to nothing run and then closed the first half on a 10 nothing run, and by the time ETSU really got their feet about them in the second half and started to be competitive with a very tough Trojan team, it was just too late. ETSU does outscore the Trojans by four in the second half, but it was 40-18 to 18 at the break, and even how Troy opened the second half, there was a two- or three-minute span there there where every single thing that could go wrong for the Bucks was, and you flip it for Troy, every single possible thing that they could take advantage of and capitalize on, they were. I'm not sure I've seen a better open to two halves in the same game than Troy was able to do against ETSU on Wednesday afternoon, that education day. Now, Jay, I don't want to make excuses for the team, but obviously I wear blue and gold sunglasses, and that's kind of my job. It's kind of your job as well. Got in at about 1130 Eastern time to the hotel and got up at 7 a.m. for shoot around. Not a lot of rest for the girls that are already in the middle of finals week that already are dealing with the fact that five or six of their teammates are out for extended periods of time. The fact that Troy and this non-conference schedule as a whole is a very difficult opponent. So a lot was going against the Bucks. That being said, when you have a start like they did, and maybe that was what we were seeing, just struggling to come out at that time of day and put forth a really solid effort. And once they were able to come around, you could see what they were able to do and play right with Troy. Not sure what your impressions were. I just thought that that first half was too much for them to overcome. Obviously, it was at the end of the day, especially the way that Troy started the game with that 10 nothing run and then the way they finished the half to take momentum to the locker room. No, they're just missing a leader. I mean, I think it's clear and simple. You, you go 12, 12 minutes and 45 seconds uh, on two different spurts combined out of 20 minute half with no field goals. They went eight minutes and like five seconds between field goals they had a couple free throws, but no field goals for eight minutes, five seconds. And it was almost four minutes, 15 seconds or four thirty between in the second quarter where they didn't have a, a field goal. And that's just a killer. I mean, in, in any level of basketball. And I think that's where you miss, uh, you know, Eric Haynes Overton and you, you hate to harp on him because it's a fact she's not, going to be there hasn't been there won't be there for a while we're not sure when the return's going to be but you need somebody to step up and, and be able to stop the bleeding at some point and uh really women's basketball still kind of find that and for whatever reason they just have not had great starts to the beginning of the of the game there's one or two maybe this season you could look at and go well okay they've definitely not gone lights out and started the game on a 12 14 nothing run which would certainly make everything easier but you're seeing time and time again that, you know, by the first media timeout, they're, they're down 10 points or something. And so it's just tough to continuously try to come from behind to play. And then Troy, I think the style is just very unique. You don't deal with that a lot. And you play those games because, you know, when you get in the tournament, you get into league play, you know, you want to try to face as much different adverse type of opponents as you can not just offensively but also some defensively and so that way you just prepare your team for the league play 
and and for postseason play. And if you're lucky enough to go to the tournament or a CIT or NIT or WN whatever these WNITs whatever these things are nowadays, if you're able to go to those, you know you've kind of been there, done that. But I think the the starts are still disconcerting. I think you know Coach Zell's like you know she's a coach. It's what they pay her for. She's trying to figure out different things to try to get her team going i think there's probably nobody more frustrated about that than her and the, the players but i think just the the starts are just you know just uh, continuously to be a, an issue and you know people underestimate the travel i think they all the time you know kind of think you know travels maybe like the nba right you get these lush <laughs> you know planes and, and you go I, I don't think people realize what what tear plus it's finals week i mean it's it's I know she desperately tried not to play a game during finals week and tries not to, but again, you try to get so many games in, everybody's schedule's different, everybody's finals week's different. She had, she needed a game, needed to get it in, and so it just happened to be uh, during finals week. But you talk about riding the bus, some people are trying to do an online final, then you, you know, already lack of sleep because you're doing your schoolwork, then you, you get there late, early morning wake up, try to play a game. You know, it's an early morning game. It's not traditionally what you do in the middle of the week. So I think there's a lot of factors that go into it one way or another. Uh, but still, I think the starts and not having a leader, the, the two big things I would take away. Yeah, you make a good point about the starts, and it's something obviously that's important in every game. Whenever you come out and can get on the front foot, you're always going to be in a better position than if you're trailing. That goes without saying. But you look at some of them this year. High Point, if you look right around that first media timeout, as you mentioned, High Point was up 15-6. to six. Radford was up 13-5. to five. Davidson, of course, we know scored the first 14 points, and then Troy scored the first 10. Really the one game, and there's a couple others where you could say they're uh, right in the contest at that first media timeout and that they're playing pretty well, but where they were distinctly the better team before that first media timeout, you'd say is Appalachian State, and we know what happened there. The Bucks kind of flipped the shoe to being on the other foot. Instead of having to constantly play from behind like they have had to so many times this year, they were up 10-4 to at the first media timeout and only grew the lead bigger from there at the half. It was 36-26, to so then finally, after that third quarter, it was a 16-point lead. Finally, when the Mountaineers started to mount that charge by pre-Stanley, uh, pre their best player, who had only five points going into the fourth and then dropped 17 in the fourth quarter, and the Mountaineers pulled it within like four or five a couple of different times, the lead was just too big to overcome. And I think that's what ETSU ran into against Troy, and they've run into a couple other times this year, specifically earlier on in the season, where you start to play your best basketball mid-third quarter and on, but you're already down so big, there's just no way to find your way back. So you make a very good point. It seems like when ETSU can get started on the right foot, uh, especially in that Appalachian State game, uh, they've been able to see that through and get the victory. They're now 3-8 and eight on the year, and they've got another tough opponent, Georgia Tech. And I'll just rattle hey, Mike, off. Go ahead, yep. Real quick, the only other thing I was going to talk yeah. about, uh, because, again, and I know we're not trying to harp on it, but they're, they're short bodies in the foul trouble, clearly – uh, a team and some continuity as well, and I, I don't. I, I think that would be um, something else we probably don't need to uh, yada yada through because again, it is what it is. You know how many players are going to be dressed, but when you get foul trouble, you get that. The style going back to that with Troy, I think that equally made it difficult. So the fact that they even made a run in the second half with all that going is still impressive uh, because that game could have been 40. I mean, honestly, they, they could have laid down and. and could have been a 40 45 point just just really beat down uh, but they were able to battle with that and, and saw some some players with some extended minutes that hadn't seen time and we'll see how that kind of translates moving forward into not just this georgia tech game we're going to talk about but down the road during the season as well no and you're absolutely right and i thought after that first minute of the second half when the first six points a three from jasmine robinson and then an and one for Harriet Winchester, went for Troy, and it was 46-18. to 18. I thought that's exactly where it was headed. I, obviously, very happy it didn't, and impressed with the fact that the women found some resilience to come back and make it a tight game. I mean, heck, it was 14 uh, after a technical foul and an and-one from Micah Sheets, and could have been down had the Bucks not uh, made a couple of mistakes trying to save the ball in bounds late. Could have been down to 10 
and if you make a three or a two on that possession that you get the technical foul, then if you're talking about all the stars aligning at seven or eight, obviously we can't live in a world of ifs, but um, if we completely get the holistic idea behind what we're driving at here, then you're talking about maybe a two, three possession game late on, which is impressive to show that they just have not given up this year, and it really does encapsulate, I think, this bunch, <clears throat> excuse me, this bunch of women that is there for Brittany Azell and company, but uh, we do have to digress to Georgia Tech who are plus 26 this year in scoring margin. That's 11th in the country. Teams are shooting just 31% against them. That's 8th in the country. They are the nation's leader in scoring defense. 42 points per game is what they're allowing. Teams are shooting just 20% from outside against them. Teams are shooting 26% against DTSU from deep, so at least the Bucks are almost matching Georgia Tech in that category, but that 20% mark is like 4th in the nation as well. Obviously... Georgia Tech is a team that is going to be able to cause some problems for ETSU. I think, Jay, that when you're going into a hornet's nest like you are, a yellow jacket's nest, I guess, in this case, when you are uh, Sunday at 2 o'clock, that won't be on the Buccaneer Sports Network. We'll have ETSU men's basketball, but make sure you follow along uh, at ETSU underscore WBB on Twitter and ETSUBucks.com. They're going to be able to do some good things. They've done some good things against high major teams. They beat Georgia by 33 on the road. That was their first win ever on the road against their in-state rivals. So this team comes with a lot of pedigree, a lot of acclaim. They've got an incredible coach on the bench that's accomplished a ton in her career at Auburn, Purdue, now Georgia Tech, the U.S. Olympic basketball team. Uh, how can you counteract? And I'm not sure that there's any one phenomenal answer for this, but they're also a top 10 team in the nation rebounding-wise. How can you counteract something like Georgia Tech does, especially considering, Jay, they are so locked down on defense? Well, I think that the big thing is, I think people need to put this in perspective. This is the best team at the time of the year that they'll play all season. And uh, and that's not a discounting Tennessee, but you play Tennessee in the first game of the year with a new coach and trying to figure out what coach, you know, Harper wants to do, trying to figure out roles, trying to do whatever. Tennessee's got progressively better. If ETSU plays Tennessee now, you know, it'd be interesting to see how the game would have been than when you played them at the beginning of the year. So I think this is the best team that, that they'll play in the particular part of the schedule that they play them. I and hope, I hope I'm making that simple enough that you understand where I'm, I'm coming from. And I think, Mike, you do. But for the folks listening, I'm just trying to make that clear. This will be the toughest game that they got. The biggest issue is how are they going to score uh, against the lockdown defense? And you're pretty much no rebounding has been a real issue for ETSU this year. It's going to be tough to get second shots. So, A, how are you going to be able to get clean looks? And, and B, can you hit those? And then if you are always taking contest, contested shots, who's going to be the person that's going to be able to kind of knock down a shot with somebody in their face? And so I, I think the, the scoring is, is really the big thing that, that concerns, I think, for ETSU, just looking at the numbers, hearing the numbers again, already knowing that, but hearing you rattle them off again, I think just how is ETSU going to be able to, to score enough to, on the road to, to make it interesting down the stretch? It's an interesting situation Georgia Tech was in coming into this year. Michelle Joseph was their coach for like 16 years. She was fired in late March after an investigation from the university who hired an outside consulting firm found that she was being bullying and abusive to her team. There was also some sexual harassment allegations that came out from a player uh, that was, I believe, really early on in her tenure there, but that didn't help her case, so she's fired. And then you just go out and you get one of the most famous women's basketball coaches in the history of women's college basketball, the U.S. Olympic team 2000 gold medalist, Auburn, she led the team to their only 31 season they've had since their glory days back in the late 80s. She was on ESPN. That's probably where some people know her from if you've watched um, ESPN's coverage of women's basketball. She was a TV analyst there for a stint in the, uh, I believe it was late 2000s, early 2010s, or I guess just late 2000s, um, and then after her time at Auburn as well. Uh, as she was there for, I think, six or seven years. And then for like seven years, she was on ESPN and was flying all over the country and doing uh, a lot of TV analyst work for the Worldwide Leader. Um, she wanted back in, read some stories about her. She just wanted back in. She said she wanted back in the business. The analyst thing was great. She was enjoying her time at ESPN, but 
Now she just wants to go back to the thing that she loves to do and was made famous for. She said her first priority would be to keep the roster intact. She wasn't necessarily able to do that. Of course, the three seniors were always going to be gone, but a redshirt junior who could have had one more year of eligibility gone, two freshmen and one sophomore. But despite that, they're 7-1, and one, and with all those stats that, you, that I mentioned a bit earlier, I'll be interested to see how Brittany Azell and Nell Fortner's matchup on the benches go. And I think you're a big Brittany Azell guy. I, I know I am. I have all the confidence in the world in her. But this is one of the toughest coaching matchups that she'll ever have to face. Well, anytime you roll out a gold medal, right, <laughs> at any level to me, because you're able to, to do it on on, uh, on the grandest of schemes, right, on the, on the national level, and you're able to take, you know, 15 people and get them to work as a unit with all those egos involved. If you can do that, then I don't think you have any issue, you know, going down to the collegiate level. I'm not trying to dumb down a college coaches but I, I think when you deal with that um, scenario I think you're, you're just dealing on a different level plus I think it exposes you to different styles of basketball that you've never come across before you know what they do in other nations how they do it how the game is called you know I think you can pick up different things I think that's the one reason you know coach Krzyzewski was fired up to, to do the Olympics uh, was for the simple reason one you get you got to work with my caliber athletes right and, and pick their brain as they got to work with him but also he talked about what it was like seeing how the international game was played, you know, dealing with some different rules, taking some different things. So I think to me that that's interesting. And I think this is really a situation where Coach Zell thrives at. I think she likes to try to match wits and, and to go toe-to-toe with this caliber of coaches. And you look traditionally through the, the, the years that she's been there, she, she's, you know, maybe it's not particularly the win total that you'd want, but, you know, her teams have fared fairly well and competitive in those contests so I, I think that's uh that's sort of the, the fun part I know she takes it as a personal challenge and she was almost excited although I think she was worried about the game and the outcome she was almost excited to have the game uh and, and to go up against coach Fortner so I'm, to me that that that's sort of the game within a game that that we get a little bit more access to that that's hard to probably describe but I think that would be a fun part too is to see just how the coaches interact for the game, you know, kind of matching wits uh, between the game and then afterwards maybe what the conversation would be like. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We know that competitive side of Coach Zell very well, and I think that this will be one of those times where she does want to rise to the occasion and really drink this in because this is a really cool opportunity for her and for the program. I think Tiana Kimbrough is going to have to have a big game for the Bucks if, if they're going to stick with Georgia Tech and get down to that fourth quarter, as you and me have talked about, get down to that fourth quarter and be within six, be within eight, be within ten going into that fourth and just have a chance uh, being six foot four as Kimbrough is grabbing 14 rebounds last game, which is the most for an ETSU women's basketball player in nearly four years. Uh, she grabbed 14 against a very good rebounding team in Troy. So I think that she'll have a chance to operate down low and have some success. She needs to be very, very good and probably play a lot. And like you said earlier, foul trouble has been a problem, um, specifically lately for Shania Jackson. She's averaging over four fouls per game over her last five and so if you can have that depth down low and really the depth let's be honest it consists of Jackson and Kimbrough right now simply because you're short bodies those two are going to have to stay out of foul trouble they're going to have to be out there at their best I think Jackson can cause some problems as that quote-unquote stretch four stretch five that can step out and hit the three if she can have a game like she did against Appalachian State and I know listeners are probably saying well Appalachian State versus Georgia Tech you just rattled off all these stats about the Yellow Jackets they're not the same they're not that's absolutely true but you have to have some and I hate to go back to the the old horse that we've beaten to death already but the uncommon effort of say a Shania Jackson a Tiana Kimbrough and uh, it'd be great if Kaya Upton could uh, go into distributor mode as she has and Micah Sheets if she can step outside say the Tennessee game if you want to compare it to that she's been really good since the Tennessee game she scored in double figures in every game since then I think Georgia Tech as you mentioned is a team on the level if not higher at this point in the season uh, than uh, Tennessee uh, certainly when the Bucks will be playing Georgia Tech a team that's already rolling pretty well versus Tennessee that was really trying to figure it out in their first game under Kelly Harper uh, this will be the more uh, the team that's gelling better. This will be the team that's under Nell Fortner, who's very used to, as you said, bringing together personalities and players from all different walks. Maybe that's why she's able to have success so early at Georgia Tech and 
having to rebuild that roster and get six or seven new bodies in there. Uh, it'll be a very interesting challenge for a Micah Sheets because of that game she had against Tennessee length and discipline defense tend to bother her type of game. So if she can come out and put together a better performance than she did against Tennessee, plus a Jackson, plus a Kimbrough, uh, you never know. That's all I got for ETSU women's basketball. You got anything else? No, I, I think just the, the big thing is, is can they get off to a good start? You know, if we gave just a quick couple of keys. If they got off to a good start, and if they get an opportunity to score, they have to score. They can't have any any bunnies near the rim not go in. And certainly if they have clean looks from the outside, they've got to get those to drop to have a shot in that game. Well said. SCS Playoff Talk. When we're back on Santos and the Sidekick, Buccaneer Sports Network. Life is all about perfect pairings. Sweet and salty? Naughty and nice? Hot and cold? Well, add instant and jackpot to the list because that's what you'll get when you add Quick Cash to your next Tennessee Cash play. Quick Cash is a simple way to turn one game into two. With Quick Cash, you'll have a chance to win up to $500 instantly right there at the register. Plus, you'll still have a chance to win the Tennessee Cash drawing later. Get the best of both worlds and get twice the fun. It's Quick Cash with Tennessee Cash, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. FCS playoffs, and I suppose I do have to give you some credit here, Jay, for a few of these as we recap and then preview this coming weekend. I'll also be able to take some credit myself, the FCS playoffs last week, and we'll also rank teams one through eight. So have that ready because I don't have any ranking, so that's 100% on you. One through eight, the teams that are remaining in the FCS playoffs while we take a look back to matchups last weekend. Let's start at the top. North Dakota State, 37, Nichols, 13. But you did not seem impressed when I talked to you. Having seen them in person for the first half, what did you think? Well, uh, North Dakota State is big. Like, I don't know. Every one of their offensive linemen were 6'3", 300 pounds or more. And sometimes, you know, people are listed as 6'3", 300. I'm not even sure if these people told the truth. I'm mean, sitting <laughs> next to the starting right side of the offensive line. One was 6'6", one was 6'7". They both were over 3'15". One was closer to 3'30". NFL scouts are looking at them. I mean, just the pure size. Uh, but I actually took a picture of one of the guys and sent it uh, to Randy Sanders. I was standing next to him. And Coach Sanders actually shot back immediately. That's what an offensive lineman's supposed to look like. <laughs> so, I guess the reason you give him a couple more years and find that, I don't know. But uh, the size of... Uh, North Dakota State at every position was incredible. Just think about this. Their starting quarterback, who just won the, the Jerry Rice Award, who was a redshirt freshman, uh, he's Blake Bacher's size. Wow. I mean, just, just put that into perspective. I mean, he's 6'4", 6'3", 6'4", and, you know, he's like 235. And that's about what Blake Bacher is. I mean, it's just incredible to see the size of – and then to see where all most of the guys are, are from, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota. There's some Iowa in there. They got one or two guys uh, from Florida, and they do have some players from Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth area because you know the national championship games in Frisco. Right. But once they played in a couple of those, they started to get a little bit of a brand down there. They started to recruit that area and say, "Look, you play a championship game back here in your hometown." So they've been able to actually get some players from Texas to agree to go up to North Dakota. But seeing it live. Um, and in person, uh, they, the offense and defensive lines are just on a different level. I mean, just, you know, and they say that all the time. That's what really why Alabama was winning all those years. It's just when you can control the line of scrimmage, you kind of control everything. I mean, nobody's getting to the quarterback ever. And then the, defensively, they go basically four down line, but sort of like Wofford uh, really did to the Southern Conference there for a while and just use the four down linemen to control the line of scrimmage. And the other guys drop back in coverage if they need to. And if it's a if it's a run, they pretty much read and react. I mean, there's not a lot of blitzing. There's not a lot of things they do special. They just are are, are man to man better than most of the teams that are there. Now they got off to a very bad start, I think, for them against Nichols. 
missed a couple open uh, shots down the field that should have resulted in a score, um, missed a couple field goals, let Nichols kind of hang around, and then all of a sudden, like a good team does, they forced a couple of turnovers in the third quarter and then stretched it out from there. But uh, an interesting place to, to watch a game, and they're open, that they run out to, one of the best I've experienced live. It, it, it's really well done. The production of everything they do is, is – is well done again they've been doing it for a long time there but uh, it was interesting to see what the top level uh team looked like on the sideline and then back up in the box to sort of see how it went but yeah etsu would be a decided decided disadvantage if they were to line up against north dakota state this year after you left the second half really where they separated themselves they actually gave up the first three points of the second half Nichols was within one but it's a 60 minute game of course Trey Lance the guy you mentioned who's Blake Bachris size throws for a touchdown and rushes for one also in the final 18 minutes of the game the game icing touchdown from Dimitri Williams on the ground to make the final a 24 point spread Monmouth started the game with a bang against James Madison my guy Pete Guerrero needed 112 yards to get to 2,000 coming into the day and on the first play from scrimmage he gets 93 of them a 93 yard touchdown run and Monmouth was up 7-0. Then after JMU, even the score, a 93-yard kick return for a touchdown for the Hawks. 93 seemed to be the number of the day. Then after JMU, got back-to-back touchdowns to take the lead. Kenji Bahar, a 93-yard touchdown pass. Okay, that, that was actually a 32-yard touchdown pass, not 93. The other two were 93, but that a 32-yard touchdown pass. 21-21, uh, to 21, the shootout seemed like is on, and then it wasn't on because the Duke scored 45 consecutive points and won 66-21. to 21. Guerrero, after that 93-yard carry, just 10 carries for 14 yards the rest of the day, really says something about JMU's defense, Jack. Yeah, and I, you know, that was sort of, as it was tight, there were a bunch of people in North Dakota State that were clearly paying attention to that game, and uh, were pulling for Monmouth, as you can imagine, and uh, all of a sudden, I didn't hear anything for a while, and I just asked them, I said, what's the score? I heard you guys give it up, and I said, oh, it's kind of ugly. They scored like 35 in a row. I'm like, oof. So it went from uh, something that was fairly tight to uh, escalating quickly. But, again, just like North Dakota State, there's so many weapons. And that's the takeaway, too, was when Nickel State missed on a couple of opportunities or decided to kick field goals inside the 10-yard the line, I, I think we all kind of all being the media folks, uh, most of them associated with North Dakota State or at least cover them regularly, we're, we're kind of in agreement. Like, if you're going to knock them off, you, you, you can't do that because – North Dakota State is going to score. They're going to throw 30 to 40 points on the board. So is James Madison. And the only way to beat those teams, you know, I think is to put 30, 35 on the board and just pray that you force a couple of turnovers and, and kind of keep them under 30. I, I don't know, unless those two teams play each other, I don't know that anybody can beat James Madison or North Dakota State in like a 24-21 game. I, I just don't, I don't see anybody else that could do that. So the top two take care of their business, but the number three team in the country in the Stats FCS poll, though they were the number four seed in the FCS playoff, Sacramento State falls, and it's the Governors, Austin P moving on to the quarters. So I think it's safe to say since the Bucks played the Governors, beat them 20-14, to 14, that since the Governors are already a quarterfinal team, the Bucks are at least a semifinal team. Am I right? Uh, I, I think so. I think I talked about that. I was on, on air on Bison 1660. basically said the same thing, so – um, you know, if Austin P were to win that, they clearly proved that uh, the Southern Conference and ETSU would, would be better than Sacramento State, and, and then the Big Sky would be the best team. Yes, absolutely. The only thing more impressive than that win, though, is how they did it. On the road, jumped out to a 21 nothing lead in the first quarter. It was 35-7 at one point. The Hornets get a pair of touchdowns after it was 42-14, to but never really close. Javon Craig, 164 on the ground and 204 in the air, three total touchdowns. Only 258 combined yards, one touchdown, and two interceptions against the Bucks. So I think you and me are at least on the same page when it comes to Bucks versus Governors versus the rest of the FCS. Really, it just seems like the Bucks and Governors right now are the top two teams in the country. Uh, maybe save North Dakota State and James Madison. As for the number three in the bracket and the number four team in the country in the stats FCS poll, I tell you, this one is sweet. Maybe even more so for us than for Weber State themselves. It's the end of days for Kennesaw State Football 2019. Bye-bye. Now I listened to a podcast on the way back from Troy that said that owls can claw the backs of people's heads off. 
which sucked, but I bet it doesn't suck as much as giving away a 17-9 lead in the FCS playoffs. Hello! 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 26-20 Weber State winners Devon Cooley and David Ames over 100 yards, receiving each 219 of the 234 that were through the air that day for Weber State. The Owls have cuckooed for their last time in 2019, Jay Sandoz. Yeah, and uh, I was actually shocked Kennesaw State was able to play as well as they did. And, you know, it just honestly proves that FCS is, other than the top two teams, you know, and really for the last decade, other than the top two teams, James Madison, North Dakota State, everybody else, the, the separation really isn't that far. It's just two teams have separated themselves from the rest of the country. You know, again, to put it for people that don't follow FCS as much as, as we do, you know, it's it's basically Alabama and Clemson and, and everybody else. It's, it's the same thing. Like, yes, some years, you know, can you get Youngstown State in there? Sure. Some years, you know, can you get Oklahoma? Eastern in there? Washington. Yes. But for yeah. the most part, it's still two teams that have dominated FCS, and it continues to be two teams that dominates FCS. Uh, more like I'm sure you're going to get to in just a second, another high-ranking team that went down. Well... There were a couple of high-ranking teams that went down. South Dakota State, we'll get to them in just a second. Uh, we're going to first, though, get to your Great Danes. And they are not a high-ranking team and even less high-ranking uh, than they were entering the game. Montana State, 47. Yef under Clifford and the Great Danes will bark no more. The Bobcats score 47 of the first 54 in the game. Albany got the first touchdown of the day. I know you were licking your chops, but it unraveled quickly for Clifford, the Big Red Jeff, as you called him. Tucker Rovig, 24 for 30, 279 and three touchdowns. Lance, Lance, Mc... Lance, Mc... Lance McCutcheon. If you'd have let me not know his name, they would have won the game. If you'd have let me continue down my path, they would have won the game. But because you made me recognize my error, then at the end of the run of the Great Danes. So, Clifford, blaming you 100%. Clifford, the big red Jeff, the second-best quarterback on the field that day. Tucker Rovig, 24 for 30, 279 and three touchdowns. Lance McCutcheon, 240-plus yard receiving touchdowns in the third quarter to put a game that was 26-7 to at the half out of reach. Will you be adopting a Great Dane after your brief love affair with him? No, it's pretty much over. Oh, that's okay. It. Well, that was a nice run. UNI does it again. South Dakota State led 10-0 after a quarter of play, but they'd end up with just 220 total yards on the afternoon, and Northern Iowa scores the final 13 points of the contest to come back from behind and win 13-10 to move on to this weekend's quarterfinals. Matthew Cook, a field goal with the ball on the one-yard line as the line of scrimmage. Shortest possible field goal, 18 yards with 218 to go. UNI has scored 30 combined points the last two weeks and won. Ninth time this year they've allowed an opponent to have 14 points or less. Uh, Montana, a massacre of Sella, 73-28. to That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Can we move on? So, so you hammer me on Albany, uh, but yada, yada, you're Sella. Okay. Illinois yeah. State uses a 21-point second quarter to down Central Arkansas. I'm sad to see it end for the Bears. They gave us some good times, but most of those were early in the season. They finished their campaign 9-4. and four. James Robinson, 210 yards on the ground. Dude's a beast. Two touchdowns on the ground. Braylon Smith picked off three times as a defense for Illinois State. Big again. The Redbirds keep it rolling. I think I might hop on their bandwagon because I do a very effective job, I think, Jay, of hopping from bandwagon to bandwagon. Illinois State might be next. Yeah, that's, that's probably uh, you just trying to fit in with the millennials. You're just going with the next hot thing, and, and uh, which is shocking because I don't, I don't find you as a guy that likes running attacks, and really Illinois State, that's pretty much what they're built on. That's all they're built on. James Robinson with 507 yards in the two playoff games on the ground. I, I naysay it. I think I feel bad. Maybe I've, I'm a very empathetic person. You know, I've got a big heart, as you know. Uh, first thing you think about when you think of me is a, a massive heart. Uh, and so I'm worried that because early on I naysay it, and now they're so good, I'm trying to save face by hopping on the bandwagon. I think that makes more sense than me well, saying, oh, yeah, I saw this coming. It's also a very tough bandwagon because they're going to play North Dakota State, I believe, for the second time this year. And they would have already um, faced Robinson and probably figured out uh, what to do against Robinson. So, I, I mean, they're probably just going to – I mean, I would assume North Dakota State's going to stack if they even need to stack the box. But they'll stack the box and just dare Illinois State to try to throw the football. 
I would assume you shut up and stop raining on my parade. Down to the final eight this week. All eight ranked in the top 18 in the Stats FCS poll with Stella being knocked out last week. No more Cinderella's unless you count Austin P, who take on Montana State. The Bobcats and Governors with a Montana State team that has taken great care of the ball. Just 10 turnovers this year. Fourth fewest in the country at the FCS level. Taking great care of their quarterback. Eighth fewest sacks allowed. Just one per game this year. And also great on the ground and in the red zone. Top 10 in the nation in those categories. Austin P turned in another stellar performance last week. 14 points that mattered really uh, is what they gave up. The two touchdowns late, throw those out because they're kind of garbage time. It was the first time a team scored in double figures against the governor since UT Martin did it in early November. Austin Pease won seven in a row. They are even better up front offensively than their opponent is. Just nine sacks allowed in 14 games this year. 11th in the nation in total defense and defensive touchdowns. Who will it be? Jay Sandoz. Yeah. Uh, let me just say this. I think the FCS playoffs have been more entertaining than what I thought they would be this year. Um, I think maybe I read too many things about the pundits just sort of predicting chalk the first round and even predicting a lot of chalk the second round. And a lot of the favorites, uh, still obviously there were uh, some that won and won convincingly, but there were a lot of chalks that either won or struggled or did not win and are sitting at the house. And so I think it's actually made for some very entertaining second-round matchups. I think it's, it, actually we have some very entertaining third-round matchups. But if you wanted FCS to have somebody other than James Madison and North Dakota State in the championship game, I'm not sure you're going to get that. I, I think they're just going to be on a collision course to play in Frisco, which I guess for somebody that doesn't pay a whole lot of attention and just wants to see – you know, maybe the, the two behemoths go at it, then that's probably what you're going to get. Uh, for guys like me who like chaos and like underdog stories, you're, you're just not going to get that. So you're not going to pick that game at all. You're just yes, saying forget am. it. Okay. You, want, you want top eight or you want me to pick the game? <laughs> no, I want you to pick the game. Um, I'm going to go with the favorite. You're going to go with the favorite. Okay, who's the favorite? I don't even know. Between the Bobcats and the Governor. Probably the, probably the Bobcats, I would assume. Montana State is a a six-and-a-half-point favorite. I think Craig has had a nice story. They've had a nice run. I think the issue is going to be um, they flew. So here's what I think is bad about the FCS playoffs. They played – also be played late Saturday night, you know, 9 o'clock Eastern, so 8 their time central. They – whenever a game got done, it would have been after, you know, close to midnight or whatever. Then they flew back and then had to turn around Wednesday and fly back to Montana to get ready for a early Friday game with less uh, preparation time and the most travel. So I'm going because of those issues. If they would have had a Saturday evening game, I might be more apt to go Austin P. But I think think Montana State with all the non- not having to travel and weather and other things. I'm going to go uh, Bobcats. It's a pair of Montana teams in the quarterfinals as the Grizzlies join the Bobcats. Montana takes on Weber State, a pair of 10 and three teams with the Grizz coming off their most points since 2010, tying their fourth most ever. They're led defensively by one of the three Buck Buchanan Award finalists, redshirt senior linebacker Dante Olson, and offensively by a man that put up 300 and three receiving yards last week alone. 303, most ever in a game for the Grizz. Samari Ture did that last week. They're fifth in the nation in scoring, while Weber State is just 44th in the nation in scoring offense and 77th in the nation in total offense. But they forced 26 turnovers, 10th most in the land, are holding opponents to 31% on third downs, fifth best in the FCS, and they've got great special teams. Trey Tuttle, top five in the country in field goal kicking. Doug Lloyd, 11th in the nation in punting. Montana beat Weber State 35-16 to four weeks ago. Name your winner. Uh, Weber, and uh, I, this is as much as I complain about chalk a minute ago. Uh, this is going to sound very familiar, but Weber State, I think, just has too much firepower, uh, and honestly, I think their defensive line's underrated. NDSU Illinois State, intriguing. I think intriguing because I love Illinois State, mainly because the Redbirds have definitely won me over. I naysayed, poo pooed them, shoved them away. But they've allowed 14 or less in eight games this season. James Robinson, we mentioned 507 in two playoff games on the ground. He's 177 away from 2,000. I say that, and I have to qualify it by saying that I just want to rattle off more stats. You know, I'm a stat guy. NDSU, top five in the nation in 16 different statistical categories, including passing defense, which you wouldn't think would be threatened this week as Illinois State largely run heavy. Scoring defense, scoring offense, turnover margin, total offense, total defense. Really the big stats is what they're the best at. The list kind of goes on. One thing noticeably absent, though, Jay Sandoz, rushing defense, 30th in the country. Robinson versus the NDSUD. 
I know what your impressions are already, and I don't want you to say them again, so maybe I should just not ask you. Uh, North Coast State by 28 or more. What do you think of that? I hate you. Finally, JMU and UNI, the battle of the three-letter acronyms. Which team will be saying more four-letter words after this one is over? Well, to me, this one's a lot like NDSU and Illinois State. Solid defense that has done a lot of work for the underdog. Illinois State in the case of the NDSU matchup, UNI in the case of JMU's task, and a favor that just appears to be destined to get to the final, as you mentioned, against that solid defense for the underdog. To UNI's credit, they've been a turnover machine this year, 32 of them forced, fourth best in the country. But James Madison has the number one scoring offense, number three scoring defense, top 10 nationally in 21 significant categories. Kind of NDSU light, essentially, are the Dukes. Are they light enough to be upset? You say no, correct? I say no. Boo. I say J- JMU no again, another 21-point uh, win. You're no fun. Back with bold predictions on Santos and the Sidekick in the Buccaneer Sports Network. An inside look at Buccaneer basketball is back this winter with the ETSU Radio Coaches Show. Monday nights all season long, Steve Forbes and Brittany Azell join Voice of the Bucks' Jay Sandoz live from Wild Wing Cafe at 71 Wilson Avenue in downtown Johnson City. It's a 6 o'clock start as Forbes and Azell field your questions, reflect on results, and preview upcoming action. The ETSU Radio Coaches Show every Wednesday at 6 right here on WXSM AM 640, The Sports Monster. Look, I think it's plain to see Andrew Luck is going to be the top quarterback in football this year. If you don't think Antonio Brown's going to be a model system when he finally gets out of Pittsburgh and Oakland and goes to New England and get released by New England and go to online college, you're crazy. The AAF is a juggernaut. It's only a matter of time before it overtakes the NFL. You really think the NFL and Roger Goodell is going to let Josh Gordon back in? I mean, it's obvious. Fletcher McGee is getting drafted, maybe even in the first round. No, 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 no. I've got plenty of sources more than you, Mike, in Knoxville. Rick Barnes is no way considering that UCLA job. Bold predictions. How much does Jay Sandoz hate bold predictions at this point in the year? He hung up on me in the break. Unbelievable. Uh, Or I'm just traveling. But, yes, I do hate bold predictions. Uh, what do you got? I'm, I think I'm still ahead by a significant margin. I think you're like three. Uh, got, for, uh, uh, you don't want to. I've got three, uh, as we always do. The first one is going to be 50-40-30. Uh, ETSU will hold Milligan under 50. They will win by more than 40 and hold them under 30% shooting. Oh, wow. That, that is a brilliant one. I, I like the creativity. Uh, you must be traveling and have lots of time to think because that one does require some thought. Uh, I don't know if I've found a thing, but I certainly have a lot of uh, time to be in a car. I'll, uh, I'll go with the Garden State Hardwood Classic. You know what that is? I do not. Rutgers and Seton Hall. They have the Garden State oh, yeah. Hardwood Classic. I mean, this is just, you think Russia-USA in 1980. Uh, you think Yankees-Red Sox. I mean, all of the you know, Celtics-Lakers from the 80s. Rutgers-Seton Hall in college basketball. The Garden State Hardwood Classic. This goes right along with them. And I'm taking Rutgers to upset the ranked Pirates of Seton Hall. And the Garden State Hardwood Classic, as big as it gets, throw the records out when those two teams play. Your next bowl prediction. Uh, I think it's a very easy one. I think it's very predictable. It is Army. That's it, Army. Army. If you now see my one thing, and I, I don't think that you would do this in this case, but you do like to even out your love for a team by going the other way to make sure that you're right on something or happy about something. So I'm glad you didn't in this case. This one probably too close to your heart to do that, correct? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's too much trash talk being uh, done by me throughout the year to do anything <laughs> other than Army. Winthrop. Who, who, by the way, is like a ten and a half point uh, underdog, too. Winthrop is on the road at Furman. The Eagles will pull the upset. Now, people may have tuned out to Winthrop since the Bucks played them, but they're four and six now. And I want to follow up on that simply because of the Twitter beef that was, I don't know if it was started by some of our Buccaneer diehard fans or if they were reacting to a post from one of the pundits around college basketball. But it eventually involved Dick Vitale. This was probably a couple weeks ago now. Uh, it was very heated. Uh, there were some words exchanged. It was not, um, I think, fun for uh, those I'm looking on the outside because I kind of wanted to jump in too. That's why it wasn't fun. Uh, but Winthrop has fallen off a bit. That being said, they're pulling the upset because four of those six losses have been by three or less. I think they make a statement against the 9-3 Paladins. What do you got for your final one? 
Uh, I'm going to the Austin P. Montana State game. They will have a 10 touchdowns or more in that game. Oh, my gosh. Who does that favor more? Uh, probably Montana State. Hmm. Since they scored, what was that? Was that them that scored 73 last week or whatever it was? That was a lot of points. Uh, yeah. I think uh, it was. It was. Yeah, uh, I, I can't believe I'm doing this, and I don't know why I am, but I think the Patriots, I'm going to say a good thing about one of your teams, they're going to win by at least three touchdowns against the Bengals on the road, and that's only bold because somehow they're only favored by 10. No one has any belief anymore in Tom Brady or the Patriots. You tried it last week. You didn't get yours. You said four touchdowns for Tom. I think he had one. Uh, it wasn't pretty. I'm going back to that well, and I'm thinking I may have the magic touch with your Patriots, and also I'm sure it would make you uh, very mad if I was able to predict something correctly about your team, which is an ulterior motive for said pick. Thank you. Uh, enjoy Army-Navy. We'll see you on Monday. Appreciate it. Thanks for calling in from the road, and uh, goodness, enjoy the heck out of that contest. Jay Sandos, we let him go. I'm Mike Gallagher on Sandos and the Sidekick. Back Monday with Bull Predictions Recap. We'll hear about Army-Navy. We'll FCS Recap. We'll have a bunch of other stuff. Sandos and the Sidekick. Fucking Airport Network. See ya. See ya. See ya.